Hello, everyone, and welcome to Think Change, the new podcast from ODI, where we will be discussing some of the world's most pressing global issues with a variety of experts and commentators. I'm your host, Sara Pantuliano, ODI's chief executive. Today, we're delving into the world of disinformation in the context of the Russia-Ukraine war. As we speak, this horrific war is displacing millions of people, is challenging the region's stability, and is threatening peace and security in our time. But what role has this information played to get us to this point? We hear a lot about Russia's methods to disrupt narratives, to paint false pictures, and to spread conspiracies. But how do they do it? What's the significance of it? And how should we really be responding to it? To discuss these questions and more, I'm really pleased that with us today, we have Natalie Varramdok. Natalie describes herself as a Belgian internet night crawler with an interest in the digital society. But in her day-to-day life, she's a researcher at Reuniversität Brussels, where she's conducting research into platform governance, the organic spread of misinformation, and online radicalization. Natalie, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for the invitation. On each Think Change podcast, we'll also have ODI researchers joining the conversation. Today is Stephanie Dipevin and Theo Tindall from our Politics and Governance program. Stephanie is a research fellow who specializes in digital societies and Theo is a research officer focusing on the former Soviet Union and the Middle East. Welcome to you both. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Great. Let's get started. Well, before we go too deep, Natalie, very briefly, why has this information become such a critical issue today, and, and particularly in the context of the Russia-Ukraine war? Well, to kick off, I think it's important to bring some some relativity to this uh, this information issue. And we do need to be aware that actors in a war will always lie about their actions and justify their actions. Uh, This is not a new thing. What is new in this conflict is that never before have people been so connected and has information been able to circulate and reach uh, an audience completely unfiltered and directly to people's homes. Um, and this has made it very easy for information disinformation to penetrate the information ecosystem um, and to pollute whatever information people are trying to get from this conflict. Uh, and so it's it become quite critical to make sure that people are well informed on whatever is happening uh, and to make sure that um, it is very clear who is actually an aggressor in this conflict. Um, and even though Ukraine is not a flawless nation, they are the victim in this conflict. Thanks, Natalie. That's a really interesting point. But what what exactly do we mean when we say disinformation? You know, there is a lot of confusion between disinformation and misinformation. Uh, Stephanie, I'll ask you, can you take us you know, through this a little bit? So what makes disinformation distinct is the intention and the content. So the content is misleading or false information. And it's spread with the intention to sort of for some sort of political purpose, whether that's to cause harm or to further a political goal. Misinformation, on the other hand, is false or misleading information, but it doesn't have to have that intent. We also sometimes talk about propaganda 
And propaganda is information that is has the intention to rally support, but is not necessarily false. And so I think what's important here is that with disinformation, we're talking about the intentional spread of misleading information. And this can take place on social media or other digital channels like Natalie um, referred to, but it doesn't necessarily have to. It's not defined by the medium as well. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind when we think about the wider way in which disinformation is spreading around this war in particular. Interesting. So, Theo, in the context of the war, what is Russia actually doing? And what, when does its disinformation campaign become state propaganda? So... Inside Russia, <clears throat> I find it useful to think of the way in which falsehoods are used as a form of propaganda, really just as a way of bringing out the differences in how false and misleading information is used domestically. So <clears throat> not only do you have a massively prominent state television apparatus, which dominates the information ecosystem, but uh, that also feeds into a larger process around the way in which new narratives around national identity are being formed. Alongside that, it is also interesting to note that a lot of states' propaganda does rely on the same techniques of disinformation that we see as a problem in uh, liberal or democratic societies. That's to say it works around creating uncertainty and muddying the waters around truth and fact. But I think it's also important to note the vastly different context in which this information is being used within Russia, that you don't have the same atmosphere of pluralism, the same diversity of voices. And that is something which has hugely escalated since the Russian-Ukraine war began on the 24th of February, as almost all independent media, out as almost all independent media outlets have been shut down or blocked. Um, Western social media organizations have been declared extremist organizations and in general the costs and the risks associated with consuming independent media have increased hugely. You touched on the audiences. Let's talk about the audiences um, for, for a minute. I mean, a lot of people in Europe will probably presume that what Russia is doing is very focused on Western audiences. Um, but let's talk more about how they're targeting people um, on the African and Asian continents, and particularly the rest of the BRICS, you know, Brazil, China, India, South Africa, their position on the war needs close attention. Um, Natalie, what are your thoughts on this? So there's been several researchers who found, um, yeah, inauthentic coordinated behavior of, uh, for example, on Twitter, the hashtags I stand with Putin or I stand with Russia, um, that has not necessarily targeted uh, Western audiences, but that has been a lot more targeted towards yeah, African uh, and Asian audiences. Now, what is interesting about um, the narratives that circulate with uh, these hashtags is that, of course, there is disinformation connected to it, uh, false information about the invasion, uh, the justifications that... Russia is invading Ukraine to denazify it or that uh, NATO is a, a, a threat uh, um, and Russia is justifiably defending itself against uh, this, this NATO threat inching closer to the territory. But what's also interesting about it is that there are quite some narratives circulating in it, um, as Stephanie already highlighted, that are more propaganda. So they're, they're not necessarily false, but they play to an emotional... Uh, uh, bias, emotional feelings about the West. Um, and so the narratives that we mostly see circulating towards uh, uh, the global South 
our yeah anti-Western sentiment, uh, hypocrisy of the West, uh, how the West has yeah waged its own wars, and how Russia isn't necessarily wrong to do the same. What's interesting about the way that these narratives are being spread and this propaganda is being spread is that there are justifiable sentiments in these. And what becomes then problematic in how we tackle this and how we might highlight the fact that there is coordinated inauthentic behavior in spreading this is that we might also delegitimize those voices. And so this, this type of delegitimization of the, the, the sentiments and, and the geopolitical um, yeah, beliefs in the global south um, is that it actually fosters a type of binary thinking. You're either with uh, the West and America or you're against it. You're either with Russia or uh, you're with Ukraine. And this is quite problematic. And it's, it's not just a byproduct of uh, disinformation. It's actually a goal of, of disinformation, propaganda, uh, information pollution. And that is to create conflict uh, and to cause binaries. And what we see in the way that if we would highlight a bit more the fact that there is this type of manipulation um, is that it would actually backfire um, and create the sentiments within um, the global south that none of what they, they say, none of their legitimate concerns um, are being heard and have any validity. So this is kind of the, the tactic that is, I think, being a bit under highlighted in the way that um, disinformation, propaganda, information pollution um, is happening right now surrounding this conflict is that it is kind of forcing um, the global south and, and countries who want to be neutral actors who don't really want to get involved, um, that it's forcing them to be in a certain corner. You're either with us or against us. Um, and this will have quite some consequences in uh, the way that we go forward. We've already seen how at the UN resolution condemning Russian aggression um, that there were 35 countries abstaining from voting. And there, if you look at the, the sanctions um, that countries have imposed on Russia, there's a, quite a big proportion of countries that are not participating for their own reasons. Um, but they are being called out on this as a sort of, why are you not engaging in, in condemning this country um, while this question was not asked when it came down to, for example, the Iraq war. These are really critical points, um, Natalie. And in fact, you know, in that resolution is also uh, very significant to see who has abstained and you know, back to the BRICS. I think it's, it's, it's uh, really important to observe that position. Stephen, you've been following some of the, the audiences in these countries quite closely. Do you want to add to what Natalie just said? Um, yeah, I do, actually. I mean, I think, Natalie, as you were talking, um, I think it was interesting with student, I'll get into a bit of an example as well, but is that when we look at disinformation in some of these countries in the global south, whether it's India or South Africa, or some of these other sort of countries where there's sort of mixed messages and, and different types of um, um, support coming out sort of that are not necessarily aligned with the West that we, like we might've expected, um, is that we see disinformation playing in these different contexts in different ways. So when Theo was talking about Russia, we see in the sense in that wider context, almost an inability to perhaps distinguish between what's true and what's not, and the sort of apathy coming out about, well, if we don't know what's true or not, then why would we act in the context of a lot of sort of repression as well? So in that sense, disinformation almost takes people away from being political in a sort of context that's quite repressive. 
in a context, for example, like South Africa, for example, um, as you said, disinformation is playing out with this sort of wider information campaign that also includes sort of form, forms of propaganda, um, conspiracies, types of information that are not necessarily just false, but might have some sort of factual truth to them or resonate with wider sentiment or historical sentiment. So, for example, South Africa, a country that also abstained, a country that is also part of the BRICS and where trade relations with China and with Russia are quite important. It's also a country where the former leader of South Africa, Jacob Zuma, has indicated support for Putin. It's a country where Russia was quite supportive of South Africa against the apartheid government. And so that sort of particular history, that alignment with the leadership in the context of sort of wanting to forge relations with Russia in the future, it's not surprising that disinformation would have a different effect and that we need to think about it in that sort of context to understand the type of hold it's having and the why, and why we might be concerned. It's a very different picture in Russia than in a country like South Africa. Um, and in both ways, sort of, and the outcome is actually different as well. In one sense, it's rallying support perhaps um, for Russia's invasion or at least a, a hesitancy to criticize it. In the other one, it's perhaps making it difficult to tell what's true or what's not true and knowing, well, what do we do about this? How do we, how do, how do we respond and sort of pulling people out of politics? Natalie, you want to come back on this? Yeah, what's also interesting about, um, to, to um, uh, pick up on, on what Stephanie's saying there, is um, the way that actually um, several different conflicts are, are being um, put in the mix here, where we see, like, you know, the, the whole geopolitical conflicts, but also some social justice uh, uh, conflicts um, that are being exploited and kind of gravitating towards this uh, Russia-Ukraine conflict. And I thought what, what happened with uh, the racist incidents on the border with Ukraine and how uh, some Africans um, in Ukraine, you know, encountered uh, uh, some very racist treatment. Um, this was also, yeah, amplified within the information ecosystem. Um, and I noticed quite a lot of discussions of uh, some, some researchers pointing out this amplification um, and people saying like, yeah, but if you point this out, you're actually saying that those voices do not deserve to be amplified. Um, and it may be quite aware of the fact that there are several different type of conflicts happening at the same time. Um, and by kind of saying, yeah, but we cannot allow the amplification of, of certain voices uh, because it'll play into like a Russian narrative. Um, you're creating a sort of hierarchy of which conflict is more important. Um, and I think this is this is quite a big threat uh, of disinformation uh, that we're seeing as a sort of byproduct on on how um, we need to kind of deal with uh, the way that information circulates um, in, in our entire information ecosystem. But this definitely needs to be put in a wider geopolitical context. I mean, there is a lot of Russia activity in Africa that we are aware of. Completely. Um, especially if we look outside of South Africa as well. So on a sort of continental scale, there's estimates that 30% of arms over the last four years to Africa, Africa have come from Russia. There's also been indications that the Wagner Group, which is a private military group with seems to be very close ties to the Russian state, has also been present on the continent. So we've seen them in the Central African Republic and Sudan, where... The Wagner Group started with, it seems, a disinformation campaign um, that then fed into a series of mining contracts, actually. So there's sort of a material gain there that comes out through this. And then on the back of that, the Wagner Group getting involved in supporting 
various military operations to sort of prop up um, different authorities. And most recently, we're seeing this now taking place in Mali as well, too. So there's a much bigger picture of Russia's presence on the continent and a much bigger set of interests that we need to keep in mind that even if sort of on, on the surface, it might seem that Russia is not the biggest economic partner across the continent. So there's other things happening here that we need to think about that might be quite important to some leaders on the continent as well. Those are excellent points, Stephanie and Natalie. And I think we've seen uh, here at ODI, actually, we've focused quite a bit on these you know, dual narratives that have emerged um, out of the crisis and particularly you know, the response to um, African nationals who were trying to flee Ukraine is one of the first, first things we wrote about. Um, I wanted to come to another point. I mean, we, we think we know who Russia is targeting, um, why they do it and how. But what about how others respond? I mean, we've seen media companies like Russian TV being banned in the EU. And on a more global level, you know, we've seen Meta deciding to allow hate speech towards Russian soldiers. Um, so I'd like to hear from all of you on this one. You know, what's your take on how government and tech and or media companies should respond, but also what is ethical. Um, Theo, I'd like to start with you. So I think thinking about the bans on Russian media such as RT and Sputnik in Europe, there is a definite risk of it backfiring, that it does present a possibility of the Russian government then using that as a pretext for blocking international news outlets within Russia, which has happened. Which isn't to say that they wouldn't find ways of outlawing or banning those outlets anyway. But at the same time, there is certainly a risk there. And alongside that, I think it's also important that we don't overestimate the impact of those outlets within Europe. That actually, in many cases, they don't have that wider viewership. They aren't consumed that widely. And we risk overinflating the threats they pose and making them more dangerous because of that. Stephanie, what's your view? Um, so I think here, in terms of thinking about how different actors should respond, we need to sort of we need to step back and think about what are the negative effects of disinformation, like Natalie's been pointing out, and then what is the relationship of the actions being taken um, related to those effects. So in one sense, one of the first effects is that disinformation can cloud this boundary between what's true and what's not. Um, so any sort of action that sort of compounds that um, will sort of add to the problem. So um, we could see this for, um, so for example, say sort of counter propaganda or um, social media companies choosing to remove some from information not, that might lead people to question even more, well, what's true, what's not, are we getting the full picture? Um, so that can actually make things worse. Um, the other side where it can make things worse too is if we think of some of the effects of disinformation beyond once it sort of sows that, um, Sort of confusion or uncertainty is that it can affect trust in society. So people don't know what to trust. People don't know what to trust. How do you know what to hold politicians to account for? And so any sort of effect that would also, could also potentially increase mistrust um, can also then compound to the problem as well. And so there we might see something like this sort of potentially unrelated action, like Meta deciding to allow hate speech in some cases. It suggests a double standard that sort of helps to remove that Boundary, well, how do we trust how whose interests Meta has in mind or not? It's making this, um, it's doing it in the case of Russia and Ukraine, but perhaps not in other conflicts. Why is that the case? And so that might give us more of a reason to mistrust. And so that again could compound the problem as well. 
trust and double standards, those are two critical issues that are definitely emerging in the conversation. But let me bring Natalie in. Natalie, what do you think about this? I mean, I was quite surprised to hear the European Commission be very strict in, in its sanctions on um, media actors. And I've seen some justifications that, yeah, banning RT and Sputnik and all their subsidiaries kind of fit into an economic sanctions regime in the same way that, yeah, they're a Russian company. So they're being banned in the same way that, that other Russian companies uh, are removed access to a European market. Um, but I must say that I was quite surprised in how far this decision has gone, especially because, um, yeah, the European Federation of Journalists has strongly condemned this move and has really asked, like, justifications behind such a decision. We can say a lot about how RT and Sputnik are yeah, actors who spread disinformation and, and uh, um, actively spread propaganda and, and are behind a lot of the seeds of information operations. But after all, there's still a media partner who do provide a different perspective on what the narratives are that are circulating in Russia. And they provide us a perspective of a different worldview. Um, so it is, it is quite, um, yeah, I'm going to say it problematic for this decision to be taken um, on the basis of not much proportionality. Because this is the question that we really need to ask ourselves. Is this a proportionate decision to ban um, a, a journalistic establishment, however unjournalistic one might, might find it, um, for, yeah, what results? So there's a question of, is this just security theater? Is this a symbolic decision? And how will it backfire? And I think Theo and, and Stephanie make some very good points about the fact that it, it does actually um, perhaps shoot ourselves in the foot on, on showing a hypocrisy where we say that Russia is now banning um, social media and, and Western media in Russia, while we the West is doing exactly the same. One of the reasons why this hypocrisy argument is, is problematic isn't just that Russia can sell it towards its own population, that it, it can now ban Western media from the country. But when we go back to the fact that there's many other countries and actors in the world uh, involved in this conflict, um, the Global South is also looking at this and doesn't really understand how what the West is now doing is any different from what Russia is doing. So we're handing Russia on a platter an argument that we have a very hard time actually defending why we are uh, completely blocking this, this media partner from um, the airwaves and in some countries also from the Internet. So it's not just social media that we have um, that the West has also forced to um, yeah, block RT and Sputnik. In the Netherlands now, um, the, the service providers, the ISPs, have been forced to um, geo-block RT and, and Sputnik from the Dutch public and even ask the VPN providers to block these websites. So this is, this is quite far-reaching decisions uh, made by governmental institutions, not just by private companies. I couldn't agree more with you, Natalie. And these are live issues that we discuss a lot at ODI. They're actually at the heart of the work that we do here in, with our Digital Societies Initiative, particularly balancing you know, freedom of arm with freedom of expression. Our, one of our trustees is Irene Khan, who is the Special Rapporteur on freedom of speech and freedom of expression. These are 
discussions we have with Irene all the time um, because you know we see this as you know being deeply problematic um, as well. Do you want to come back on this? So I just wanted to pick up on the comparison with sanctions which Natalie made, which I think is a useful one in that we are dealing in the case of banning Russian media outlets and with sanctions essentially with forms of war by other means or by another name. And in both cases, there is a definite feeling that there is a need for action, but at the same time, no one really knows what the consequences of these actions will be. And another risk which we have to be aware of with banning known propaganda or disinformation outlets is that that doesn't stop disinformation being produced. All it means is that it will be coming from unattributed sources. Uh, for example, although it's not hugely popular in Western European countries yet, Telegram has become very widely used within Russian-speaking uh, countries. And uh, there's huge risks around privacy and anonymity on Telegram. And you can produce channels which reach potentially thousands or hundreds of thousands of people with unattributed disinformation which is then potentially harder to fight and harder to respond to. Seven, what do you think companies should do? Um, so I think the question is, with, with that too, is sort of what should companies do now, given this particular sort of mess that we're in, um, for lack of a better word, I guess, where we've already been banning some of the state broadcasts, we are seeing some of these more unattributed sources coming out. Well, what do we do at this point in time? Um, and I think... So when I think about this, it sort of seems like what's coming out is that what we can't do to solve the problem is to try to sort of address or combat or get rid of disinformation. Um, companies can slow it down. They can focus on the trying to deamplify it so it doesn't spread as quickly. But if we want to actually provide people with an alternative or to provide some sort of stable truth in politics amidst a war situation where lying is just so prevalent and where we have these systematic campaigns of disinformation, what seems to me to be of utmost importance is identifying and preserving some sort of channel that is separate and is separate from the sort of messy space of where we see disinformation. And in the past, people have looked to things like um, university or the judiciary or journalism to provide some sort of independent source, which now we're seeing issues with that because people don't trust experts in the same way. We're seeing journalists also being considered fake news and also being banned. Um, and so I've just been thinking about where could this source come out of a sort of a stable truth that we could rely on. I mean, in, in Russia, it's a whole completely different story as well. But where I see examples of what this might look like could be around something like the claims that the, um, President Zelensky makes to authenticity through his account, that in this very messy environment, there's something about the way in which he presents himself, um, attaches himself to a place and a point in time that gives it a sense of credibility. Another place I've seen it, and I think this is why it's also become so contentious probably, is something like the um, Associated Press Journalist reports of the Mariupol, where the urgency and the importance of providing some sort of account on the ground that was so raw um, became hopefully a way that we could rally around something that was almost too true or too, too almost raw to sort of deny as, deny as well, and that even attempts around fake news struggled with that. So I think... For me, the question is really, what, can we create a channel separate from this sort of mess of disinformation that still has a sort of collective sense of credibility? And I think that 
the challenges is that what that looks like for me here from London or what that looks like for someone in South Africa or in Russia is going to be different. But I think that's where the conversation might need to be. Natalie, I see you want to come back in. Makes a really good point on on creating a sort of yeah separate channel. And I, I see this also in the sort of reestablishing trust in sources. And because what I think is, is another backfire that we're seeing in the way that we're trying to tackle this information is to create this sort of yeah critical mindset without providing the tools of the critical mindset, which is sort of making people distrust anything and everything. And uh, one example that I thought was very striking is uh, with some um, information and footage that was also appearing um, from Ukraine that didn't paint Ukraine in a very positive picture where they were um, tying people to poles who um, were suspected of being spies for Russians. And these were disproportionately Roma people who this happened to um, also saying that they, they were being, yeah, looting, looting buildings and stuff. And yeah, messy things happen in war. I'm, I'm not defending or uh, um, necessarily condemning this. But what I saw happen in, in the discussion around these incidents was a great amount of incredulity. People saying, no, this cannot have happened um, because I see it being amplified by certain accounts. Uh, this cannot have happened because, you know, we've been painted this picture of, of Ukraine as this uh, flawless actor, the, 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 the victim that, uh, that does nothing wrong, perhaps. Um, and so the, the critical mindset um, that has, has kind of been fostered in a way that, that we don't provide people with, with resources and, and ways to say, okay, but sometimes you do need to trust uh, uh, certain information. Um, it, it has made it very binary in the way that we look at things and that people kind of start just trusting, um, yeah, their instincts, their feelings on information, which is actually exactly what we try to avoid. Um, so creating a sort of parallel, yeah, so channels that, that um, earn the trust of people um, and, and showing people how exactly uh, information is authentic uh, is a very important um, thing that, that needs to um, kind of happen in, in the way that we deal with this information. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for your great insights. I'm afraid we're going to have to stop it here. Um, but this is such an evolving issue that I'm sure we'll come back to, to it in this show. Uh, I think grounding today's conversation in the Russia-Ukraine war really shows just how dangerous the role of this information can be, particularly in a conflict. Uh, at ODI, we are continuing to work on these issues through our Digital Societies Initiative. We focus on how to build inclusive digital societies and enhance public trust particularly amongst youth and, and with a human rights lens, both off and online. As I mentioned earlier, we are particularly concerned at the moment about how to balance freedom of expression and freedom of harm. Um, as we can see from the Russia-Ukraine context, this is a vital issue. Um, thank you to our listeners. We hope these discussions have given you new and useful perspectives and insights. Remember to subscribe to the show. We're on all your favorite podcast providers. Until next time, thank you for listening. And thank you to our speakers today, Theo, Stephanie, and Natalie.